Hello, and welcome to the Canada's History Podcast. My name is Nell Ostrom, Associate Editor for Canada's History Magazine. Today, I'm speaking with Dan Conlon, Curator of Marine History at the Maritime Museum of the Atlantic in Halifax. Dan Conlon knows a thing or two about pirates. He wrote a book called Pirates of the Atlantic, and he created a popular exhibit on pirates for the museum. Dan, when we think of pirates, we often think of these swashbuckling buccaneers of the Caribbean. Your book points out that the waters of Canada's east coast were also swarming with pirates at one time. What attracted pirates to this region? Well, we were sort of one of four areas that were sort of central to the golden age of piracy. Uh, That's a period in the sort of the 1720s that uh, all the big pirate names come from Captain Kidd, Blackbeard, you name it. And all those movies are kind of set in that period. And um, the Caribbean was a place where they had their sort of wintertime base. Uh, And a lot of them got their careers started in the Indian Ocean. And then the coast of Africa was a rich hunting ground. But we were the fourth place in what they often called the Pirate Round, where these pirates kind of went from one point to another around the globe depending on the season and who was chasing them. And uh, sort of Canada's East Coast was very attractive, not so much for gold and silver, because we didn't have tons of that, but for manpower and recruits. Um, we had these um, an, you know, enormous international fishery off the coast of Newfoundland and Nova Scotia, and uh, tens of thousands of often very unhappy, unsatisfied fishermen who um, uh, could serve as a really useful pool of recruits for, uh, for pirates. So they would arrive, you know, virtually, you know, like clockwork in May or June as the fishing fleets arrive from Europe and uh, raid, pillage and recruit until sort of uh, until early fall, just dodging the first of the hurricanes and then head south again. So they saw the east coast of Canada as a pool of potential manpower? Yeah, and sort of a low level of loot. You know, all ships carry a certain amount of money to buy supplies. Uh, and the other thing is they would often sort of uh, load up on food and alcohol, <laughs> um, which, you know, uh, the fishing vessels would have in, um, in large supply. And uh, then they always had a good crack at the transatlantic trade um, going between Europe and North America, which all goes down the Canadian East Coast. And, um, and that would sort of give them a crack at some, you know, very rich merchant ships they could potentially uh, target. So how did they get away with all that raiding and pillaging? Yeah, so that that early period in the 1600s, there's really um, there's uh, there's no government in in uh, in Atlantic Canada, very little government in New France, and there's no navies. You know, naval ships aren't sent over from Europe until the late 1600s. So you get these these all these bands of armed fishermen, armed merchants who are all quite happy to attack their rivals. And uh, this really early period is um, a period where some of them have licenses that are supposed to, they're called letters of mark, and they're supposed to be privateers who are controlled by governments. But a lot of them, when the war stops, they just keep attacking. And uh, that's the sort of the earliest period. And um, the later on in the golden age of piracy in the 1720s, governments are becoming a little stronger, and the rules are coming stricter. And then you get these, these uh, pirates, uh, the classic ones we know of, who really cut all their ties with land and form their, only really, their own really interesting rebel societies. If you had to choose who was Canada's most successful pirate, who would that be? Well, I think you'd have to choose Peter Easton, uh, and he's a pirate in um, in that in that early buccaneering period, uh, which you could, if you were successful, get away with piracy. Um, he um, really interesting character. He was a privateer, but uh, when the sort of the wars ended in the early 1600s, he decided that attacking ships was too lucrative to give up. So he uh, he's first based in the Channel, then he switches to Africa, and then in 1612 he arrives in Newfoundland. 
And uh, he spent sort of um, two years in Newfoundland, sets up a whole land base, and uh, it's phenomenally successful. You know, rides with two ships and then finishes with ten ships, and uh, estimates range from anywhere 500 to 1,000 men. And it's uh, just this armed force to be reckoned with. And um, uh, he sort of he sought a pardon from the King of England, which many of uh, these pirates did. If you had enough money uh, and you promised to stop attacking uh, ships of the monarch of your choice, they would give you a pardon. And uh, he got tired of waiting the pardon from the uh, from King James. There's a wonderful quote where he's uh, recorded saying, "I don't need this. I am a, and I am in a way a king myself." Uh, so he decided to, instead to uh, to ally himself with a nobleman in the south of France, which is where he retired in in sort of uh, in wealth and luxury and comfort, and died in his bed. Very few pirates die <laughs> comfortably and wealthy. Uh, so I think we'd have to give him the credit as the most successful. Apparently, there were a few women at the time who took up piracy, including one rather notorious one who was based in Newfoundland. What can you tell me about Maria Lindsay Cobham? Well, um, uh, she and her husband um, uh, seemed to set up a base in western Newfoundland, and they prey on St. Lawrence shipping. And um, they um, they come from this period where after piracy has been suppressed, it becomes a really high-stakes endeavor um, because governments have become efficient at catching pirates and they're all executed when they're caught. And uh, so they kind of depart from the golden age of piracy, which usually involved robbing people but seldom killing them. They seem to have killed everybody that they captured so that there'd be your classic dead men tell no tales. And um, uh, they also seem to have disguised their attacks as shipwrecks and um, we're, we're kind of left guessing just about how much piracy they did uh, commit because we have very few sources about them. Uh, in, they apparently wrote a confessional autobiography in their, um, in their, when they were old, but nobody's actually seen that document that, that I know of. I think they probably fall into a sort of a subspecies of pirates called wreckers. And um, lots of accounts of these in the east coast of Canada, people who would sort of hang around areas that were dangerous to shipping, waiting for shipwrecks, and then they'd murder survivors and loot the wreckage. And sometimes they would even uh, induce shipwrecks by setting false lights that you know made a, a, a line of rocky cliffs look like it was a safe passage for navigation. And there's some very lurid accounts of how uh, they would torture um, uh, people before killing them, including um, Mrs. Cobham, who apparently used one officer as target practice and uh, would sort of uh, sport, sported the uniforms of an officer she'd previously killed. So a, a thoroughly nasty bunch. So it sounds like piracy got nastier as time went on, but eventually it disappeared altogether from the Atlantic East Coast. What happened? Piracy as a serious threat really disappears in the 1730s. Uh, and uh, um, uh, once European powers send Navy ships over in force and set up these very powerful ruthless court systems, um, uh, really they only take a few years to clean, clean pirates out and then they become a really rare thing that... Uh, so the Cobbins are that very ended period where there's very few pirates around. But it, you, you get these sporadic pirate episodes like once about every 10 years, there'll be a bloody ship mutiny or um, there'll be an isolated attack of piracy. As they sort of we move into the 20th century, these, these episodes become sort of uh, far less bloody and they're usually just people stealing ships in spectacular fashion. And the last account I found of somebody being charged with piracy was in uh, the centennial year in 1967. There were a whole string of these uh, really wild trawler thefts in the south shore of Nova Scotia where unhappy or drunken fishermen stole these big trawlers and then led the authorities on a merry chase out to, out to the North Atlantic. 
And um, uh, these fellows were initially charged under the criminal code piracy section, which has incredibly, you know, it's like, you know, life sentences um, because piracy is a very serious crime. And, and then the courts tended to reduce them to sort of more minor theft charges. Um, and uh, and that sort of, in our waters, um, kind of was, you know, kind of your last gasp of piracy. Now, there's one thing that everybody wonders about. Did these pirates leave behind any buried treasure? The one thing pirates didn't do is bury treasure. Um, you know, we all think we, they did because of the, the books, the movies, and the uh, the folklore. Um, but there's no accounts anywhere of pirates in the Atlantic Ocean burying treasure. But it seems like there's a lot of folklore about stories about buried treasure and so on on the East Coast. Where does that come from? Oh, yeah, there's a rich vein of folklore. Um, the, the classic Canadian folklore is Helen Creighton. When she ran, ran around interviewing people in the 1920s and 30s, they had these really detailed accounts of how pirates buried treasure, but they didn't just bury a treasure. They always buried some luckless soul with the treasure to whose ghost would act as a guardian. And uh, treasure hunters believe quite sincerely that if you wanted to find treasure, you had to follow all these rules. You had to search at night because that's when you see, would see the gro- ghost ooze out of the ground and that marks the spot where it's buried. Uh, but you had to use special tools and uh, magic tricks and you couldn't talk. That gave the ghost additional powers. And these stories are told from one end of Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, from Prince Edward Island to the other with this very consistent pattern of guardian ghosts um, and all sorts of subtle variations on them. So the, the, the folklore is colorful and interesting, but it, it, uh, it doesn't connect with any actually historical uh, evidence. Wow, interesting stuff. Thank you, Dan. Okay, my pleasure. I've been speaking with Dan Conlon, curator of marine history at the Maritime Museum of the Atlantic in Halifax. Dan's book, Pirates of the Atlantic, was published in 2009. My name is Nell Ostrom. I'm the associate editor for Canada's History Magazine. For more about pirates in Canada, read the August-September issue of Canada's History. <laughs>